Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for Free For All Fridays. It's an opportunity every Friday to take an hour of, uh, hopefully of a good spent hour of your time and hours to talk about some of the big stories that have been happening on the national scene and in some cases on the provincial scene. And that's actually where we're going to start today here in Ontario. Joining me today to chat about all things current are our panelists, Faz Bednar, Executive Director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society Program. And a digital policy expert, and Bob Richardson, senior counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal chief of staff. Welcome to Free for All Fridays. Thanks for having us. So the three of us are in Ontario, but some of our listeners are not. But no doubt they have heard what has been happening here. Uh, The Ontario government, the Ford government, had embarked on its first set of negotiations following their election. And that was with the local QP education workers in the province, custodians, librarians, uh, uh, early education workers, EAs. And it's not gone well. The union put on the table and stuck with that for some time, an 11.7% increase each year for three years, along with some additional compensation pieces. And the government offered up around 2%, a little bit less for some workers, a little bit more for others. On Sunday, uh, the union indicated that it would go on strike, as was its right, uh, as of today, November the 4th. And the government responded, uh, given how much the kids have been out of the school over the last two and a half years due to the pandemic with a piece of legislation that made the strike illegal, that imposed a contract settlement, and which invoked the notwithstanding clause, recognizing that the legislation might well uh, be considered or at least challenged in the courts for its constitutionality. Let's listen to Education Minister Stephen Lecce here in Ontario. They demanded a nearly 50% increase in compensation or threatened a strike if they didn't get it. Um, and I think the government has demonstrated that we will do whatever it takes uh, to keep these kids in class in a normal, stable environment without any disruption that I believe they deserve after two extraordinary years of a pandemic and recent strikes that preceded the pandemic. And so we're here because QPE at the end of the day, has completely brought forth unreasonable demands. They refuse to withdraw their strike. And we have literally no choice other than to move forward with legislation. And Fred Hahn, who is the president of CUPE, this was his positioning. We've been talking about a flat rate wage increase because we know that that's more fair. We've been talking initially about a $3.25 an hour wage. This is also not unusual. It was, in fact, the provincial government who bumped some workers' wages by $3 an hour during the pandemic because they couldn't attract and retain people. This is the exact situation we are in in schools. So, Bob and Vaz, I wanted to broaden the discussion beyond what's actually happening on the ground here in Ontario and talk a little bit about public sector labour negotiations. We know from a a study from Nanos Research just this week that Canadians are feeling worse than ever about their personal finances across the board. We've got many of our provinces and and federal government in significant deficits, uh, certainly significant debts. Yesterday, Finance Minister Krista Freeland warned of uh, an economic slowdown uh, continuing and in fact, the word recession has been trotted out. And yet we have public sector workers who are demanding of their governments higher wages, 
In Ontario, as I said, it was 11.7% in each of three years. Doctors in BC just signed a $708 million three-year deal with their province, which puts their salaries into a significant uh, six-figure-plus salary. So my question to you guys today is, is there a better way when it comes to public sector labor negotiations, given the turmoil of the last two and a half years of the pandemic, given the fact that we have a government here in Ontario that has invoked the notwithstanding clause to be able to support their goals when it comes to labor negotiations. I'm going to start with you, Bob. Uh, Well, number one, I would say that uh, this has been poorly handled by the government. And I think it's been a complete misstep. You would think that most people would be on the side of wanting to have kids in schools. And I think most people have. And I think they thought that the public would be with them 100%. But the manner that they've gone about this has been a complete fiasco. Uh, going for the nuclear option and bringing up uh, charter rights or dismissing charter rights off the top was ridiculous. We have had nine premiers in this province since the Charter of Rights and Freedoms uh, was uh, brought, in, uh, brought in place. You work for one, Deb. I've, I've, I've worked for uh, so, some others too as well. Not one, not one has ever moved to do something like this. So it was way out of line and that's created a, a huge problem. So I'm not sure we need to say that we need a whole new system of negotiation. What we, what we could use is we don't need stupidity um, on, on the government side right off the top. And we also need a more reasonable approach from the union from time to time, too, as well. Uh, and trust me, I'm, I'm not a huge fl- a flag waver, particularly for this union, QP. So I think, I think we have to say this has been bad public policy. Um, and this should have been an easy win for the government. And instead, they've scored on their own net. And they went way over the top. And uh, quite frankly, I think they're paying a price for it right now. So I actually want to come back later in our hour to talk about the notwithstanding clause, again, using this yeah. week in Ontario to do a, a jumping off point from it, but to talk more broadly about its use and and whether it is still an effective tool or whether it has become overused. So we will we will park a little bit of that, Bob. But my, my general concern, I guess, Vaz, is that, and, and again, I look at our perspective here in Ontario, we have a whack of negotiations coming. High inflation. People are, union heads are trying to keep up with inflation. And yet when inflation is in around the 6, 7, 8% range, those are astronomical bills to go back to the taxpayers. You know, we have very positive job numbers that are just coming out today in terms of how we're doing. And I think one of the challenges with the conversation is not just the fact that we use 11, you know, we're using a percentage which obscures the the very low wages that these people in particular are making, but also the the obscures their duration and time from from you know the last time they were able to negotiate a pay bump. We treat uh, these workers as if they're low skilled. These are high skill workers that are investing in our future talent. If we have people graduating and sailing through our education system that aren't critical thinkers and don't have the skills we need, that's a hit to our innovation economy. And I know we'll hit on the notwithstanding clause more later, but. You know, as I reflect on this week, TGIF, everyone, um, it feels to me like the Ford government's use of the notwithstanding clause and just all the Elon Musk and Twitter stuff, just because I focus more on tech and public policy, feels like reminders to me that 
these two sources of like less democratic power, uh, money and majorities, though you earn a majority through democracy, they just so quickly reveal what seems to be a disdain for governance and processes because what's this, what is going on right now, as, as Bob points out, is not a negotiation. It's the absence of a negotiation. And instead we're kind of getting an, an almost smug kind of brute, brute force. And I feel a little bit like we're in whatever land. I want these people to be able to live in uh, urban areas and, um, you know, support their families while they're supporting our families by supporting our children. Yeah. And I want my kids in the classroom and they're not today. And that's my problem. And that's why I do think, and this is the first here in Ontario of a series of education uh, negotiations that are going to take place. Bob, just quickly, we don't have a lot of time, time for essential services. Yeah, you know, I think we need to look at it. We can't tell people they have collective bargaining and they have rights. And then every time they go to exercise the rights, immediately impose uh, back to work legislation. Um, So I think we either go to binding arbitration, or we have collective bargaining, we can't we can't pretend to have one when we're doing the other. And I think that's fundamentally what the issue is here. And I think it's something that government struggles with. And I think it's something that we need to solve. All right. I never thought I'd be a fan of it, but I, I will say after these last few years, I'm coming <laughs> round to it. So there you go. Vaz Bedner, Bob Richardson will come back in a, a, just a few moments after the break. And we are going to, as we have done, I think, I don't know how many Fridays in a row here, talk about what's happening with the inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act earlier this year. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to Free For All Fridays on the iHeart Talk Radio Network. To Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this afternoon for Free For All Fridays. And joining me to talk about the week's top stories are Vaz Bednar, Executive Director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program and a digital policy expert. And my friend Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff. So I want to turn to the Emergencies Act. I don't know how many Fridays in a, in a row, as I said, we've done this, but <laughs> certainly lots to talk about. In fact, let's just give you, uh, this week was some testimony from some of the organizers of the Freedom Convoy that turned into an occupation in Ottawa earlier this year. Let's start with Pat King and just give you a flavor of his testimony. Remember, these people haven't been able to sleep for 10 days, okay? (laughs) It's kind of funny. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. It's pretty hilarious. So a little bit different testimony. Of course, he's talking about residents in the Ottawa area who were absolutely inconvenienced during the occupation, and apparently that's very funny. Let's also hear from Tamara Leach, one of the other organizers. I was growing increasingly alarmed with... Uh, the mandates and the harm that I was seeing um, the mandates inflict on Canadians. So at least Tamara in that clip uh, outlined why she was there. I found the first clip a little offensive to everyone, let alone those folks living in Ottawa. Vaz, I'm going to start with you. What's your take on the most recent set of of, um, uh, testimony that we heard from some of the organizers? 
I have not listened to all of the organizer testimony in full. I did also want to note that potential of a of a class action lawsuit that implicates people not only who were physically uh, protesting, and by physically I just mean being there in the flesh, nothing about the physicality of it by any means, uh, but also those who supported uh, those people financially which I think just raises interesting questions around accountability and the voices here. One of my nightly doom scrolls, actually, Deb, is still just searching things, commentary about uh, Peter slowly. I was quite fascinated last week and, and reading everything about his perspective. So fundamentally, I think it's so important that we are able to hear testimony from the organizers and more of their perspective and experience here. And I think that's what makes everything so fascinating overall. Yeah, I mean, just a couple of points, Bob, on on Vaz's comments. The first is that when you hear the police testimony at, at different levels and then you hear the organizers' testimony, it feels as though the organizers were far more organized and prepared than our police forces. And And the second part of it is I would have thought this was a good opportunity for the organizers to make their case, to restate their objections, as you did hear Tamara Leach do, around what was so offensive about the government's actions. And yet it's a bit of a circus. Yeah, look, I mean, I think uh, the Trudeau government should be paying these freedom uh, witnesses because it's, it's certainly strengthening their case every time they speak. What, what my takeaway on this was, these, these folks at the end of the day was, and I, I use this wor- word very specifically, idiots. Uh, they had no plan. They are quite happy to operate outside of the law. They're entitled. They're more than happy uh, to use racist language, anti-Semitic language, anti-gay language regularly. It was buffoon central. So uh, I'm glad that the government didn't meet with them. I'm glad we did not negotiate with them. We shouldn't do that at all. Um, you know, but I will say the one thing that was very helpful this week from their testimony is it showed that policing is a mess in this province. And I would argue in this country, and that if we need a public inquiry, I think we need less of a public inquiry on this. I think we, we know what we need to do to fix the problems. We need a public inquiry on policing to figure out what's going on there, because there appears to be a number of problems. Yeah, Vaz, I mean, as I said uh, after your last comment, it felt as though these organizers who were able to to uh, fundraise so much money and obviously stymie our police officers were far more cohesive and organized than our police forces. Well, they were working towards a common goal, I suppose, and able to leverage a range of tools. And it does sound like, you know, in this in this digital age, um, police forces were perhaps using digital tools to be a little bit more subversive, right? We saw that blurriness kind of crossed over between being ideologically aligned with the protesters or, you know, right, personally feeling that they... Uh, support for them and then sharing confidential information with them, that those are kind of two two very distinct opportunities. But I think your point is intriguing in terms of the kind of mass mass movement uh, seeming more coordinated or, or aligned um, than these services. Uh, I also think the the different jurisdiction of the police services uh, that we've been, you know, hearing about and reminded about end up coming off as a little bit unnecessarily convoluted. 
right? Who, who's uh, not in a who's on first situation. That's me being a little bit of a jerk, but you know, people offering to step in who, you know, what additional help do we need? Who shares information there? Who's, who's undermining, who's in charge? It shouldn't be that convoluted. And our, obviously we need to do more on our emergency planning. Yeah. And as Bob points out, the, you know, the real usefulness of this inquiry may be in fact about policing as opposed to the original intent of this inquiry, which is legislated and which is to decide whether the government was legitimate when it made its decision, whether they had legitimacy to make the uh, decision to invoke the Emergencies Act. And in that regard, we're actually going to hear coming up from the Prime Minister and the Public Safety Minister on their uh, their perspective on what was in front of them at the table. Bob, any sense of what you think we'll hear from uh, both uh, Justin Trudeau and Marco Mendocino? Uh, you know, I think they'll obviously be cautious on what uh, on what they say. I think that they will be laying out the reasons why they felt it was necessary to, to move forward here. Uh, I think they could be uh, use some of the testimony of, of, of some of the witnesses and others uh, to give people a sense. Policing was a mess. Uh, this group was not a coherent group, uh, and they had no intention of, uh, of leaving. And the government was faced with a significant problem that needed to be dealt with, um, you know, in real time. So, you know, that, that would be kind of how I approach it. And I would try to be as facts-based as, uh, as possible and, uh, frankly, get in and get out. That would be the best approach, I think, for the for the for the leadership of the government of Canada. It's true, although that is really, as I said, the crux of what we're supposed to be getting to here. The rest of it, while it is context and is entertaining on some days, is not really the germane issue. The one thing that we have talked about in the past on on Free for All Fridays is uh, Doug Ford's appearance or lack thereof, and the fact that he's fighting it. Vaz, what do you see happening there? Do you think that the premier will be successful in uh, not? heading to the inquiry? And do you think that's a good idea? I, I mean, nothing seems to stick from him. So I, I feel like he could, he could be like quite successful in that, but I'm hopeful that he will change his mind and choose to participate. People of all stripes are participating in this. If any, thing that we're learning, you know, in terms of the the process is that maybe some of these interviews should be concurrent. You know, Bob's getting me thinking about how different stakeholders have more time to prepare more information available to them as well. Um, and I've also been thinking a lot about uh, the artifacts that we cannot salvage the text messages, the, the private messaging, etc. So, you know, our premier is the leader of this province, and though this legislative process is at a different order, it was so relevant to Ontario, and um, I'm hopeful that he'll be able to share his perspective as a leader. Yeah, I mean, Bob has heard me say this before, and some of our listeners as well. I, I actually understand the the legal advice I'm sure he's getting about parliamentary privilege and some of those things. But I actually felt that the the best course of action for the premier was to to fight and and win, uh, and not be forced to testify but then to actually testify uh, of his own free will. I actually thought politically that would be uh, the best outcome for the premier because I think, you know, he's, it's a good forum for him to talk about how he felt at the time and, and what he was going through. 
You're talking with uh, Vaz Bednar, Bob Richardson, Free For All Friday, coming up after the break. We're going to go back to a bit of a of a takeaway from the QP government uh, strike here in Ontario and talk about the notwithstanding clause. I want to drill down into it a little bit with our guest to talk about whether it's past its prime, whether it's still effective, or whether this is simply an issue here in Ontario of it being misused. Lots of opinions to come. It's Deb Hutton. You're listening to Free For All Friday on the IHOP. Talk Radio Network. And now more of Free for All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm your host, Deb Hutton, and joining me this afternoon to talk about all of the big issues and the big stories of the week is Vaz Bednar, the executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program and a digital policy expert herself, and Bob Richardson, senior counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal chief of staff. So I said earlier in the show that we were going to come back to the notwithstanding clause, and certainly the reason we're talking about it today in particular here in Ontario is because the Ford government invoked the notwithstanding clause in bringing forward legislation uh, that took away the current CUPE dispute uh, bargaining unit's right to strike as of today, although they are now on, because of the legislation, an illegal strike, and our kids are home, most of them at least, in the province. But I thought it was an opportunity to talk more broadly about the use of the notwithstanding clause. We certainly... um, saw the Prime Minister wade into this issue this week with regard to Ontario's use of the notwithstanding clause. And I really hope that uh, all politicians call out the uh, overuse of the notwithstanding clause to suspend people's rights and freedoms. I will point out that was not his commentary when the province of Quebec used it on more than one occasion. Uh, but here's Premier Ford's uh, response to why he used it. We want to take care of the frontline, hardworking, educational workers, and we'll Opposition always have their backs. But you know something? We, we are going to be feathering the nest of the head of the QP. Again, we differentiate between labor and labor leadership. Bob, that'll be a familiar sound to you, the uh, uproar of the legislature when question period is is taking place. So in my going back to my, you know, Canadian history lessons in, in high school and university, I thought that the notwithstanding clause was a way to balance the duly elected authority of our policymakers in our legislatures throughout the country with the potential of judicial overreach. That was how I saw it. And if I listen to the premier, whether you want to, whether you want to agree with it or not, in its simplest form, that's how I view this. You could argue there were other tactics, but in, in its simplest form, the premier said, our public policy goal is to keep kids in school. We're on a collision course because we are so far apart on labor negotiations. So I'm going to ensure that this is how we meet our public policy goals, given some decisions that were taken by the judiciary in the last decade uh, on issues of this nature. The flip side of it, I guess, is that this was always perceived to be a nuclear option, a complete last resort, and perhaps never anticipated that it would be used hardly at all. 
So now that we're here, we've seen its use uh, not just by Ontario, but by other provinces. Have we misread the use of the notwithstanding clause over the last few years in Canada, particularly in Ontario, Quebec? Is it the right tool? Is it past its prime? Have we used it in a way that was not anticipated? Just generally, what's your view of the notwithstanding clause today? Yeah, look, I think I think we have both in, in Ontario and Quebec. Again, um, I made the comment earlier, we've had nine premiers since uh, the notwithstanding clause has come in. We've had liberals, we've had conservatives, we've had a new Democrat here in Ontario. None of them used it. Only one premier has. And quite frankly, over a labor dispute, this, this most uh, decent run, all of those other premiers dealt with intransigent uh, teachers unions or got into fights. Uh, uh, God knows, Deb, your former boss, Mike Harris, uh, had some epic scraps in the education sector, but he never thought to go in and uh, use the uh, notwithstanding clause. This is inappropriate. It's not what it was designed to do. And same thing in Quebec on basically, uh, uh, you know, putting a shiv in, in minority rights. Uh, uh, it, he knew he couldn't get that passed any other way, and and he and, and that's why he used the notwithstanding clause. So I think it's good to have it there. Uh, I think it can be used on occasion, but it shouldn't be being used for really, really political reasons like it is right now. So again, uh, and I'm sorry, Bob, that you probably didn't hear this, but my view is it was. Uh, to give a balance between elected policymakers and their public policy goals and potential overreach of the judiciary. So whether you agree that that is that scenario, was that not the original purpose of the clause? Yeah, I, I, I think it was. And it was also to provide, uh, I think, a little bit of balance between uh, the province and the federal government, too, as well. It was kind of a, an extra an, an extra weapon, I think, if, if they thought that the federal government was getting way out of control. So, I mean, that was the purpose of it. But neither of these uses that have happened most recently uh, fit that guideline. So I think it's starting to be misused. And we don't want this to become a regular occurrence because uh, I think that is it's a slippery slope. So, Vaz, whether you agree with Bob's analysis of, of the the usefulness of it, the fact that it was invoked on more than one occasion with this premier, now that we're here, what do we do about it? Because now that it's being used, there is a there is a sort of, quote, precedent for other premiers to invoke this or for subsequent Ontario and Quebec premiers to invoke it on a more regular basis. Deb, it makes me think of what you were saying earlier with uh, the... Review of the Emergencies Act. Hey, aren't we actually learning a little bit more about policing and are we going to come up with some constructive ideas about what needs to change so how we can improve these processes? And maybe through this conversation, one of the outcomes will be a re-examination of the use of this clause. I think people are ready to discuss it more, even though, you know, tipping into big conversations about constitutional complexity when our day-to-day lives are so characterized by these very intense pocketbook issues in this period of inflation, etc. I don't think those two topics are, are incongruent by any means. And you're right, there's a newer precedent that's being set and we need to understand uh, the appropriateness, people's comfort and discomfort, their own understanding and appreciation, and whether this tool is being over-leveraged in ways that it actually wasn't initially conceived of being used. So I'm all for starting to rethink this. Why not? 
So, Bob, the challenge with with Vaz's perspective, which I think many people would say it's time to have a conversation about, and hence why we're doing it today, is that there are many who would say the reason we got to an agreement uh, back in the 80s on this was because of the notwithstanding clause, because premiers were worried about the overreach of the charter. So how would you ever begin to amend it or to uh, confine it or whatever the solution might be, given the thresholds that are necessary for some constitutional changes? Well, you know, I, I think that's true. I was a student uh, during uh, the early 80s when all this was going on in Ottawa at, uh, at Carleton University, so I remember it. So, yes, that does make me 100 years old. But uh, so I, I remember the discussions going on, and this was a very important component of it, uh, pushed by a number of uh, premiers, including Premier Davis from Ontario, who agreed, agreed with it because they saw it as an important protection from overreach not just from the judiciary, but also from the federal government. So I think it's an important thing to have it in there. And, you know, right now we've got a number of uh, uh, provinces concerned, Saskatchewan and Alberta as examples, about potential federal overreach. New Brunswick's another one. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think there needs to be a provision in there that they feel if something really radical happens that they don't like, they've got an opportunity to react. So I think it needs to stay, but I think how they use it uh, for, I mean, honest to God, uh, you know, every one of those other premiers managed to deal with labor situations. And sometimes it was back to work uh, laws and, and sometimes it was negotiated uh, settlements. Everyone else has managed to do it without invoking the notwithstanding clause. There was absolutely no reason for it in this case. You're listening to Free For All Fridays. I'm Deb Hutton. After the break, we will go to our panelists and do a bit of a lightning round on a whole whack of topics. Stay tuned on the iHeart Talk Radio Network. Free For All Fridays continues. On the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host, and it's been a it's been a pleasure to be able to fill in on a few Fridays in a row for Amanda Galbraith, who is on maternity leave and taking care of her her newborn son Bruno. So it's been a lot of fun for me. And one of the things I've wanted to do in the last fifteen minutes uh, with our panel every week is to do a bit more of a lightning round and and get your thoughts on a whole series of topics that we didn't have time to to really sort of drill down on very far. Joining me to do that in this next few minutes is Vaz Bednar, the executive. Executive Director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program and a digital policy expert, and Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Liberal Chief of Staff. Vaz, I'm going to start with you. We've had a report this week that say the top three grocers here in Canada have posted higher profits this year than the average of the last five years. Of course, prices have gone up. People are finding it very difficult to afford some of the basics in our grocery store. Question to you, Vaz, is it time for some government intervention here or should we let the markets decide? 
Well, the government intervention I'd like to see is the long overdue and much anticipated review of our Competition Act that was previewed uh, in February of this year. Uh, there's been lots of literature and discussion about the relationship between competition and inflation. It's a little bit murky. We hear narratives around greedflation now. But the fact that Loblaw made $1 million per day in excess profits in 2022, I think pushes people to demand more transparency into what's driving prices and where are they being gouged and where are they just sort of feeling the pain of inflation. That's not even a lightning round. I, I would love to talk about this for the whole hour next time if possible. <laughs> That's always the problem with me doing it. I, I like know. It, but <laughs> I feel the need to jump in and, you know, ask Bob his perspective. But I'm going to go to topic number two. Bob, yesterday, okay. the uh, Deputy Premier and Finance Minister, Christia Freeland, uh, unveiled what used to be a, a short, small, uh, fall economic statement. It was a little bit more like a mini budget. She did uh, certainly warn us of upcoming uh problems in the economy. She did uh, throw a little bit of money at the situation. What's your take on it? Right balance? Not far enough? Too far? You know, I think they're close to the right balance, and I think they have done reasonably well. Um, uh, When you take a look at inflation and you compare it against other G7 countries, we're in the lower part of the pack there. On unemployment, we've had, we have our best employment situation since like the 1970s. On debt to GDP ratio, because we were spending a lot of money, we're, we've gone down the fastest of any G, uh, G7 country. Um, on terms of deficits, a lot of our provinces now are out of debts. Uh, you know, Quebec, Ontario, uh, I believe BC, Alberta, New Brunswick. So, uh, and a lot of that is courtesy of the federal government, but also because their economies are coming back. So I think overall, it's reasonably good compared to others. It's not perfect. And 6% plus inflation is still too high, but I give them a generally good marks. And I also like the fact that her initiatives in her budget were targeted to people who really need help. Okay, so I don't get, I have to follow my own rules. I don't get to say we still have big mm. debts and too much spending on top of big spending. However, I will move to topic number three. That's the host's prerogative. So uh, again, I've been doing this for a few Fridays in a row now. And I think every Friday we have put the topic of Danielle Smith, the Premier of Alberta, on the docket. Uh, this time there's a new poll out that says if an election were held today in Alberta, 38% support the uh premier who came to the job through a leadership, not through a general election, as we all know, and 47% would support Rachel Notley, former premier, but current NDP leader. Vaz, uh, is this the end of Danielle Smith, a very short-lived premiership or too early to tell? You know, for me, it's it's too early to tell. I don't want us to get into the habit of kind of, you know, the pump and dump with our political leaders. I think it's incumbent on parties to work as well as they can with the leaders that they have instead of, you know, when the polling's looking looking poorly, uh, going back to more hyper internalized politics that can can confuse the average person in terms of why there's a new leader and stuff. Again, I don't want this to become like a uh, Liz Truss lettuce situation. I'm not sure what vegetable she is by now. Probably something pr- with uh, some good endurance, maybe an eggplant. Um, but let's uh, let's stick with her. You'd be hard pressed to uh, to to beat her uh, her short lived record of what was it 44 <laughs> days. Uh, Bob Richardson, going to do a bit more of a fun topic for you, but sports because I know you're a fan. So we hear that the very talented, uh, very philanthropic Ryan Reynolds 
may in fact and handsome and handsome maybe thinking about <laughs> purchasing the ottawa senators what's your take well, look, uh, that would be a massive improvement over the previous ownership, so that's a great thing. And uh, I'm a big Ryan uh, Reynolds fan. I think he and his wife are really cute, and uh, I think he's a good actor, and, and I think he's a great Canadian. So if he was involved in some sort of um, consortium to buy the Ottawa Senators, I think that would be terrific. He's also been a great soccer owner in uh, in Britain over the last uh, couple of years, and very, very popular with local fans there. So... I say bring it on. I think it would be great for Ottawa. And uh, a little bit more Ryan, Ryan Reynolds is not a bad thing. So, Vaz, uh, you're going to hate that this is the lightning round, and I'm just going to say two words. Elon, Twitter, go. <laughs> I mean, the, life happens fast, and life is happening fast to Elon on Twitter. We saw earlier today that they've seen a significant drop in advertisers. He's sort of playing that off as another polarizing uh, conversation. We're seeing the rollout, not just of uh, layoffs today, but also of this new Twitter blue feature where you can pay to have a blue check mark, which is being interpreted as a status, digital status symbol, instead of something that verifies your identification. So, Deb, get ready. It would be pretty easy for me to impersonate you or Bob, you online, and pay $8 for a check mark and just make the internet an even more confusing place than it already is. So, I'm, uh, I'm feeling dizzy with it all, but I hope we can get to a point of stabilization. It's been an important uh, vehicle in my digital life, and I'm, I'm not ready to completely walk away yet, but maybe I'm going to have to be. Wow. Okay. So, Bob, on Tuesday, our friends south of the border will be having midterm elections. While the current president's name is nowhere on any ballot, this is often seen as a, a referendum of sorts on the president of the day. What's your prediction for what will happen in both the uh, House and the Senate? Uh, I think the uh, Republicans retake the House probably by about 15 seats, maybe even a little bit more, but some are in and around there. I think the Democrats hold the Senate, although that's getting closer and closer. And the reason they're holding is because the Republicans really nominated some bad candidates. Had they nominated some better candidates, they probably could take the Senate as well. This is not un uh, unheard of, as you were just saying. Uh, usually the uh, party uh, that isn't of the president in the White House uh, usually does much better in midterm elections. I think this one will be no different than others. Okay. Uh, I was going to get to another topic, but I think we're probably out of time, unfortunately. Thank you for your thoughts. Vaz Bednar, Executive Director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy and Digital Society Program, and Bob Richardson, Senior Counsel at National Public Relations and a former Ontario Chief of Staff, which is where I first met Bob Richardson many eons ago at the uh, <laughs> Queen's Park Legislature. We, we won't say how long ago. No, that would make me feel very sad on a beautiful Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us over this last hour, both to my guests and to our listeners. You've been listening to Free For All Fridays. I'm Deb Hutton, and this is the iHeart Talk Radio Network. Have a great weekend.